Welcome to the podcast service of La Civiltà Cattolica. My name is Michael Kelly and I'm the publisher of the English Language Edition. And today I'll be interviewing Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott is the 28th Prime Minister of Australia. He was leader of the opposition before he was the Prime Minister and has been in public life in Australia for over 25 years. But now, in retirement from Australian parliamentary life, he's become a member of the British Board of Trade. The British Board of Trade was an enormously significant organisation prior to Britain's entry into the European Union. It was the regulating authority for British trade for a couple of hundred years. Now it's back in line as the most significant activity in British trading. And I'm talking to Tony about Britain's withdrawal from the EU, the difference that makes to Britain, and the difference Britain's withdrawal will make to the European Union. It's an ancient institution dating back to the 1600s, but in recent years, there really hasn't been much point to a British Board of Trade, given that its trade policy was essentially controlled by the European Union. But the British Secretary of State for Trade, Liz Truss, was very keen in the lead up to Brexit to reinvigorate the Board of Trade. And um, there's a number of uh, prominent business people, prominent academics uh, and former politicians such as myself on it. And our job, uh, Michael, is to act as uh, advisors, facilitators and advocates as Britain does its best to carve its own uh, global trading path in the post-EU era. Well, let's begin there. Can you just outline where Britain is at in exiting the EU? Where have they got to? Well, they are now fully out of the EU. Uh, there are still a few loose ends to be tied up, such as the precise relationship of the City of London uh, to uh, the uh, comparable uh, financial centres in uh, Europe itself. Um, but essentially, Britain has exited the EU uh, with uh, what is actually a pretty good free trade deal, zero tariffs and no quotas on traded goods. Now, given the tensions and given the, I suppose, threats and counter threats that were running around uh, given the gloom and doom that was so widely predicted uh, of chaos on the borders uh, should Brexit go ahead. It's a tribute to the persistence of the British government and to the uh, fundamental common sense and decency of the negotiators on both sides that this common sense arrangement uh, has ultimately been entered into. I mean, why should goods which have gone backwards and forwards uh, without let or hindrance uh, for the last 40 odd years, um, which have gone backwards and forwards between, between Britain and Europe for the mutual benefit of both countries and their citizens. Why should those goods be needlessly expensive, needlessly restricted uh, or needlessly held up on the border? So, so it's been a much smoother process uh, than was widely expected prior to the event. And the challenge now is for Britain to get the best possible free trade deals with its other major partners, particularly countries like the United States uh, and Australia. Okay, and they're the decisive moments still to come with the, the US, so Europe, the US, and then into the Pacific, I would imagine China, Japan, Australia, and others as well. 
Well, that's right. Um, I'm, as you'd expect, Michael, a big believer that freer trade is good for everyone. Um, but I do absolutely accept that in the short run, uh, freer trade can benefit some more than others. Um, I think there's been a particular issue over the last couple of decades with China, for instance, which uh, has taken advantage uh, of freer trade without always playing by the rules. So I think uh, Britain will be focusing, uh, at least initially, on countries that do play by the rules, that do accept the rule of law, where commerce is generally free as opposed to politics by other means. And, and, and so I wouldn't be expecting Britain to conclude a free trade deal with China anytime soon. Uh, in fact, I think that uh, free trade deals between uh, the liberal democracies, the free trading liberal democracies in China are going to be much scarcer uh, in the near future than they have been in the recent past. Well, of course, as far as China's concerned, they've always been the ones playing hardball on that with us, on property, on goods, on you know tax arrangements, anything. They, they've been the ones driving the hard bargain there. And there's no likelihood or evidence to suggest that they'd be changing anytime soon. Well, what we've discovered, Michael, is that rather than converging with the West, which is what uh, people anticipated uh, in the post-Deng Xiaoping era, uh, China has taken advantage of the West's economic opening up to China to make itself rich. But there hasn't been any comparable opening up by them to us. We've let them into our system, but they haven't let us into their system. And what's now extremely obvious under Xi Jinping is that uh, uh, the Chinese want to maintain uh, the absolute control of the party state uh, in a way that didn't seem at all obvious uh, 10 or even five years ago. And as Australians, the, the most obvious instance of, of uh, China playing exceptionalism is that they can come in and buy companies and property and anything they like in Australia, in Australia, you know, provided it passes the various fairly minimal uh, restrictions we have on the national interest. But we can't even, you know, we can't even buy a telephone box. It's, um, it's just not a possibility for us to operate that way in China. Trade with China has tended to be very one-sided. Um, they, they see trade as politics by other means. Um, trade for them is strategic in a way that uh, trade is not seen uh, by the average uh, business person in a country like Australia. Now, President Obama said early on that um, if Brexit was to go ahead, what Britain will have to do for itself is all that the EU trading bureaucracy was able to provide in terms of agreement. I mean, that must be actually a pretty enormous task. The kind of person who took a sort of a, a globalist position and was an instinctive supporter of supranational organizations and and i think president obama was probably in that camp was always deeply hostile to brexit until very recently 
it would have just been assumed that Brexit was irreversible, that it was inevitable um, that countries such as Britain would join with countries such as Britain and France and Italy and ultimately be subsumed in this wider European entity. There was a sense in which the Brexiteers were saying, stop history, we want to get off, or at least that's how it seemed to the liberal internationalists such as President Obama. So what I think Obama was trying to do uh, was, in a sense, well, intimidate's not quite the right word, but I think he was he was almost trying to bluff British voters uh, out of voting for Brexit. Uh, but instead of being impressed by the arguments of the then US president, uh, British voters basically said, well, actually, uh, we're in charge of our country, not you, and we'll do what we want, not what you want. Um, and they voted, uh, as we now know, uh, for Brexit. But then, of course, the fear was that Britain would never to, would never be able to reproduce for itself the sorts of arrangements that the EU had, uh, had earlier negotiated with other countries. But uh, in fact, that process has been remarkably smooth. Nearly all the deals that Britain participated in with other countries through the EU uh, have now been replicated, uh, often on terms that are significantly better uh, than the old deal. For instance, Britain now has a separate trade deal uh, with Japan, uh, which in important respects uh, about um, commercial uh, property, um, intellectual property, uh, IT and so on, is a better deal than the deal that Japan had earlier done uh, with the EU. So, so the whole Brexit process has turned out to be much less fraught uh, than the critics have been contending right up until the end of last year. Does that indicate that possibly we're looking at the end of, of the EU? Well, that's a very good question. Michael, and uh, I've never been a huge fan of the EU, uh, which tried to do what I think was always almost impossible, meld uh, 27 now and 28 before very different countries into a kind of supranational superstate. I, I always thought it was, it was difficult. I mean, look at the, the US Federation or the Australian Federation. Uh, everyone speaks the same language. There aren't vast differences between Californians and New Yorkers. There aren't vast differences. In fact, there are hardly any difference between West Australians and New South Welsh people. And yet we know how difficult it is uh, to get agreement on lots of contentious issues. We know how difficult it is for different levels of government to work together within relatively harmonious, comparatively monolingual societies, let alone uh, within Europe which has had uh, a long and at times bloody history uh, of disagreements. So I can understand the idealism of the uh, EU's founders back in the post-war period. Uh, they wanted to bring the countries of Europe together to ensure that something like uh, the First and Second World Wars never happened again. But frankly, it's not the EU so much that's prevented conflict in Europe. Uh, it's the fact that all the countries of Europe are now democracies, the fact that all the countries of Europe uh, have seen within living memory the horrors of war. That's what's prevented 
a serious conflict in Europe, in my judgment, rather than the EU itself. So it's easy to see what the EU's founders intended. Obviously, it's easy to see the advantages of free trade within Europe. But the trouble is, free trade within Europe all too often was accompanied by heavy protectionism against the countries outside of Europe. And that's why Britain decided to leave. And let's see what what happens. I think if Brexit turns out to be a success, certainly other countries would be able to contemplate uh, leaving Europe without the kind of apprehension and the gloom and doom that was general after the Brexit vote in Britain. Well, it always struck me as rather strange what unfolded, because in fact, the big argument, you know, effectively, the EU came out of two or three leaders of European nations, all of whom had suffered at the hands of the Nazis. And uh, they basically clubbed together and said, look, we're not going to put up with this for any anymore. Uh, we've got to make sure that France and Germany don't fight each other again and so mesh their economies and contain and restrict their armies that we don't have this same catastrophe unfold again. Then all these other countries came in. And it, and it seems to me that many of them have benefited extensively from the subsidies that have come from, from the other countries and it's upgraded their uh, standard of living and cost of living. But it's done... You know, it's warped things. I remember being in Europe at the time that the one currency came. And on one day, you could get a thousand lira for one Australian dollar. The next day, you could get one euro for 1,000 lira, but you could only get 50 cents for an Australian dollar. It was just how the continent of Europe was going to handle that complete transformation of its currency and of its value system was just had me shaking my head the whole time. Interestingly, Michael, I think, I think in Europe, the EU was always seen as a political project. In Britain, it was always seen as an economic project. Now, there's no doubt that particularly for the poorer countries of Europe, the EU has been good economically, but the intention of the EU's founders uh, was always political rather than economic. They wanted to prevent conflict between nations, whereas the intention of Britain when it joined the EU was, was simply to join um, a free trade area, which uh, in those days, we're talking about the 60s and early 70s, in those days looked to be comparatively more prosperous than Britain. But Germany aside, I don't think people would say that's the case today. All right, well, let's move on um, to what the experience of having having the EU operating, because it actually did, in many respects, benefit Britain, which availed itself of unskilled labour arriving from Europe and doing jobs that the Brits themselves wouldn't do. Now, what's become of that and what, what's the future of such arrangements and, and the use of such resources? Will, will Britain be able to compensate for that? Well, again, Michael common sense eventually prevailed and the fears that British people living and working in Europe would be expelled and that Europeans living and working in Britain would be expelled, thank, thank God, have not been realised. Every EU citizen uh, living and working in Britain has been given a right to continue uh, to live and work in Britain and, and, and vice versa, which was the common sense arrangement. Of course, people from the EU will no longer have 
an automatic right uh, to come to Britain and live and work indefinitely. Uh, they'll have to uh, pass British immigration tests, but I think we can be fairly confident uh, that they will be liberal tests and provided people are coming uh, for work, not welfare, uh, well-paid work, not welfare, uh, I'm very confident that uh, um, the skilled workers of Europe uh, who can add to the British economy uh, will continue to go to London and elsewhere. And likewise, British people who can add to the economies of, of France, Germany and elsewhere, they'll also be able to move. But there'll be no automaticity in the future as there has been uh, in, in the past. Uh, but I think the idea that uh, somehow Britons will be economic prisoners of the United Kingdom uh, and Europeans will be economic prisoners uh, of the EU, that uh, Paris and London and Berlin will be separated by these massive walls no one can get over. Uh, again, I think that's uh, the kind of dark fantasy which was put around by the Remainers, but there's no way that's going to be the future. What I suppose the acid test is what's happened to investment is what what are the figures on investment in Britain from Europe anything? Look, I don't have figures from the last couple of months. I'm not sure that those stats are available, but certainly in the immediate aftermath of Brexit, the share market rose, employment rose, and inward investment rose, and uh, while some individual businesses have hesitated before investing in Britain. Generally speaking, there's been no diminution of inward investment to Britain and there's been no change in the relative weighting uh, of inward investment in Britain vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the rest of Europe. And interestingly, uh, one of the, I suppose, side effects of the way Britain and Europe respectively have handled the pandemic should be uh, if you like, a reinforcement uh, of Britain's position as a comparatively open economy vis-a-vis -vis Europe, given the vaccine nationalism, uh, which is now rampant inside the EU and the, um, the arbitrary interference with trade uh, at the behest of national governments, uh, worried that uh, vaccines produced in Europe uh, might benefit the other countries that have contracted to buy them uh, rather than their own citizens. Just moving right along, what particularly is your job on behalf of Britain? What, what, where do you intersect with that on the Board of Trade? Well, obviously, uh, as an advisor on the Board of Trade, you're not negotiating, but you are advocating and you are facilitating. So I've uh, been informally talking to uh, British and Australian ministers and officials about how the process of finalising an uh, Anglo-Australian free trade deal can be expedited. Uh, I've been to a number of conferences, both uh, here and overseas, to talk about uh, the benefits of free trade generally and to talk about the enthusiasm of post-Brexit Britain uh, to once more be one of the world's premier uh, free trading nations. So, so look, it's... Um, it's, it's the sort of role uh, that people who join uh, official committees normally have, and I'm very pleased to do it because as far as I'm concerned, 
uh, as an Australian, the better Britain does in its new in its new circumstances, the better for us. Uh, I think the stronger Britain is, uh, the better for democracies everywhere. Given that, uh, along with America, Britain has always been uh, uh, the principal leader of the free world. What do you think that um, Britain's departure from the EU will do to Europe? Well, hopefully it will be a wake-up call and uh, the officials in Brussels uh, will be uh, more conscious of the reasonable aspirations of the citizens of individual countries, uh, will be less statist and less inclined to uh, dictate from head office rules to be applied to 500 million people, all of whom have distinct national identities. So hopefully it will be a wake-up call uh, to the EU uh, to be more sensitive to the reasonable aspirations of its members. Now, um, (laughs) I say hopefully uh, because it's the old story, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Let's see. Well, yes, let's see. And also, let's recognise the other thing that perhaps, you know, underpinning what you're saying is the big loser out of Britain leaving leaving uh, the EU is not the EU, it's Brussels. And for those, for those of us who've been amused by British comedy for a long time about its, its relationship, particularly Jim Hacker as the Prime Minister and, yes, Prime Minister, the EU... The vote to get out was as much in in all the conversations I've had with informed people in in Britain was a vote against Brussels. It was uh, not really a vote against against the idea of the EU. It was a vote against the administration of the bureaucrats in Brussels. I think that's a very fair point, Nick. I mean, other other British uh, anti-French or anti-German, other. French anti-British. Uh, look, <laughs> I suppose uh, there are there are national stereotypes, and uh, there are, I guess, uh, uh, the odd prejudices around. But uh, the stereotypes are less, and the prejudices are less now than ever before. And uh, I think Britons are only too conscious of the fact that they are always going to be geographically part of Europe, but they didn't want to be institutionally part of Europe. And and I think that was a perfectly reasonable aspiration. Okay, Tony, thank you very much. I think that's illuminated quite a number of areas. Is there any anything else you would care to add or comment on? Well, Michael, look, it's uh, always a pleasure to talk and uh, may uh, these English language uh, podcasts under the auspices of uh, Chivilta Catolica uh, be a great success and it's great that uh, uh, worldwide support for development and dr hander has been able to help to promote them terrific yes and i'm very grateful for that too because he takes us to a whole new audience and to a whole new level thanks michael okay thanks tony and have a good weekend and you. Yeah.